The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In May 2001, a man in his early 30s, along with a boy and a woman, were stuck at Narita International Airport in Tokyo. Held by security, the man was questioned over what appeared to be fake passports. The passport in question said that the family was from the Dominican Republic, that the man's name was Pang Shang. Pang Shang is Chinese for fat bear. However, the man also claimed he was from South Korea. Why was a South Korean man with a Chinese name trying to get into Japan using a Dominican passport? He answered, I want to go to Disneyland. As the Japanese officials continued to dig, they discovered something both shocking and laughable. The man was actually named Kim Jong-nam, the eldest son of North Korean dictator Kim Jong-il. When word got back to Kim Jong-il of his son's arrest, he was overcome with embarrassment. Was this really going to be the next leader of North Korea? A man caught sneaking into an enemy country to go to an amusement park? Or was there someone else who could show better judgment? Another son who could bring honor to the Kim dynasty? Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love, let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is the fifth episode exploring the Kim Dynasty of North Korea. Today we'll dive into the rise of Kim Jong-un, the third and current leader of the Kim regime. We'll uncover Kim's mysterious childhood and how he was groomed to take control once his father passed, and how the promise of new leadership ultimately meant a tighter grip on the people of North Korea.
After his May 2001 arrest, Kim Jong-nam and his family were deported to China. Ultimately, he would make the gambling city of Macau, just a ferry ride away from Hong Kong, his permanent home, doing his best to stay out of the limelight. Many around the world considered the 2001 arrest the beginning of the end of Jong Nam and his position as heir. In fact, it actually confirmed a decision that was made much earlier. It wasn't his firstborn, nor his second, who would succeed him, but his third. Kim Jong-un. There is widespread speculation regarding the exact year of Kim Jong-un's birth. According to South Korean intelligence agencies, it was January 8, 1983. However, American intelligence claims that the year was 1984. According to North Korean propaganda, however, Kim Jong-un was born in 1982. The Washington Post's Beijing bureau chief Anna Fifield posits that the reason the year was changed to 1982 was to coincide with both his father and grandfather's birth year, with Il-sung being born in 1912 and Jong-il's changed to 1942, it helped to create, as she puts it, a symmetry. Like everyone born into the Kim dynasty, much of Jong-un's early life is shrouded in mystery or a complicated web of fabrications. What we do know is this. His mother was Ko Yang Hui, a famous dancer and Kim Jong-il's second consort. He has an older brother, Jong Chul, and a younger sister, Yo Jong. Kim Jong-il made sure to keep all of his families separate from one another. Jong-un and his siblings rarely interacted with their half-brother, Kim Jong-nam. Instead, Kim Jong-un grew up in a lavish but lonely set of houses throughout Pyongyang and beachfront properties in Wonsan, about 130 miles west of the capital. Much of what we know about Kim Jong-un's childhood comes from a man with the pen name Kenji Fujimoto. Fujimoto was the sushi chef hired to cook for the Kim family. So while the people of North Korea slowly died from starvation and malnourishment, Kim Jong-un dined on the finest raw fish. Like all North Koreans, Kim Jong-un was educated to be an anti-imperialist, specifically to hate Japan and the United States. These two countries, according to the North Korean government, are the root of North Korea's problems. Ironically, Kim's mother, who was born in Japan, often took her children to Tokyo Disneyland. But none of these trips included outside friends. In fact, Kim's only real friend, according to Fujimoto, was Fujimoto himself. Together, the two spent their days watching Kim's favorite sport, basketball, or listening to music on Fujimoto's Walkman. Basketball in particular became a major obsession for the future dictator. He watched it religiously as a child, and unlike most other kids in North Korea, he would walk around dressed in the latest Nike or Adidas sneakers and shorts. Outside of basketball, Kim Jong-un's other joy was playing with military toys, specifically model planes and warships. He became so interested in their mechanics that he forced engineers and scientists to answer his many questions. Years after defecting, his aunt would tell Anna Fifield that his study of planes and aeronautics was an obsession. 
Kim Jong-un became his father's favorite child around the time he was eight, mostly because he exhibited traits of a strong leader, namely being bossy, stubborn, and sassy. Even though his brother Jong-chul was older, he would often take orders from Jong-un. It wasn't long before people started calling Jong-un Comrade General. However, he also started to demonstrate a keen awareness of being a leader. Fujimoto notes that he had the ability to make good judgments with solid reasoning. He knew when to praise and when to criticize. Such character traits weren't lost on the aging Kim Jong-il as he considered who would replace him. In 1996, when Kim Jong-un was roughly 12 years old, he was sent to Bern, Switzerland to receive an education under the alias Pak-un. All of the Kim children used fake names to conceal their identity. School was never a priority for Kim. A former teacher once described him as a good student, but not an extraordinary one. And though he seems to have been friendly with his classmates, he was mostly remembered as a loner with very few friends. Those friends, though, spent their days playing basketball once the school bell rang. Years later, once Kim Jong-un became leader of North Korea, many wondered if the more liberal education he had received in Switzerland would translate into his domestic and foreign policies, specifically into some kind of reform for the isolated country. What the world didn't realize was that Kim Jong-un received another education, how to rule as a Kim. Around the time that his stepbrother, Jong-nam, was bringing shame to the Kim name by trying to sneak into Japan, Jong-un, just a year or two shy of 20, was called back from Switzerland, ostensibly to begin his training as a leader. By now, it was all but certain that he was going to be his father's successor. His mother, Ko Yang-hui, was elevated to our respected mother, essentially deemed first mother of North Korea. This crucial propaganda title was given to only one other person, his great-grandmother, Kim Jong-il's mother. This was a major move to legitimize Ko, who not only wasn't legally married to Kim Jong-il, but wasn't even the first mistress he had children with. As Anna Fifield posits, it was an early indication that one of her sons was next in line for the leadership. But for a Kim to become leader, he first had to go through military training. Beginning in 2002, Kim Jong-un attended the Kim Il-sung Military University. While there, he was further indoctrinated with the idea that North Korea stood alone in the world, the military part of his grandfather's Juche philosophy. According to North Korean propaganda, Kim Jong-un was a gifted student. A story that is widely circulated around North Korea suggests that not long after he entered the military academy, Kim was teaching his teachers. That's how inherently smart he was when it came to the military. Obviously, this was propaganda to connect Kim with his guerrilla-fighting grandfather. In December 2006, Kim Jong-un graduated from the military academy with flying colors and a dissertation entitled a simulation for the improvement of accuracy in the operational map by the Global Positioning System. Speculation has been raised as to whether or not the dissertation exists, or if Kim Jong-un even attended the university in the first place. 
former students who have since escaped North Korea claim that there aren't any classmates who can vouch for Kim's attendance, and that if he actually did attend the university, he probably received private lessons. These same sources also claim that members of the Kim family rarely became military officers because it would mean potentially risking their lives should a war break out. With this in mind, it's highly likely that Kim's entire military education was a ruse to paint him as a more formidable leader once he took control of the country. What is certain was that upon his graduation, Kim Jong-un went to great lengths to credit his father for his military acumen. He called his father a genius when it came to the ideas of Juche-based warfare. And he vowed to become a faithful man who relieves burden from the general who is so much concerned about the army's combat. Moments like these were used to capitalize on the growing sense that Kim Jong-il's time in power was waning. Throughout the 2000s, various reports coming from American and South Korean intelligence claimed that Kim Jong-il was in increasingly poor health. The most common belief, though unconfirmed, was that he suffered from diabetes. Thus, it was important to start development on the cult of personality of the successor sooner rather than later. Such painstaking efforts by the state would suddenly be kicked into overdrive in the summer of 2008, when word got out that dear leader Kim Jong-il had suffered a stroke. Coming up, Kim Jong-un takes control of North Korea. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now back to the story. Throughout the early 2000s, young Kim Jong-un, the third son of Kim Jong-il, went through military officer training in preparation to be his father's successor. While Kim Jong-il had yet to officially announce Jong-un as his heir, the intention was clear. However, whatever grand plans Kim Jong-il may or may not have had for making such an announcement will never be known. Because in the summer of 2008, the aging dictator suffered a stroke. Throughout the fall, there was worry that dear leader would suffer more strokes. With that in mind, it was time to start the grooming process for Jong-un. The dynasty depended on it. In January 2009, 
Kim Jong-il revealed to the highest officials within the Workers' Party of Korea, the ruling Vanguard Party, that Kim Jong-un was his successor. Word quickly spread down the party's ranks that the decision had been made. But to many, the name Kim Jong-un was completely foreign. The general understanding was that Dear Leader's children, however many there were, had all studied abroad in Europe. But that's pretty much all they knew. The people of North Korea knew even less. For the most part, all they noticed was a new song airing on the obligatory radios in their living rooms. The song was Footsteps, and it was a propaganda song written for Kim Jong-un for his eighth birthday. Depending on the translation, the lyrics go something like this. Tramp, 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 the footsteps of our General Kim, spreading the spirit of February. Tramp, tramp, tramping onwards, bringing us closer to a brilliant future. Tramp, 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 ah, footsteps. Following footsteps, information about the successor was slowly but surely released to the people. And of course, it was entirely manufactured to carry on the Kim Dynasty cult of personality. As was done for Kim Jong-il, the propagandists perpetuated the myth of the Pektu bloodline. If you recall, Kim Jong-il's birthplace was changed to Mount Pektu, the highly important mountain in Korean culture, thus giving a divine quality to the Kim dynasty for future generations. Next came fabricating his various feats as a child. According to the government, Kim Jong-un knew everything possible about warfare. Allegedly, when he was three, Kim was able to shoot a light bulb from 100 yards away. He also apparently could ride horses by age six and drive a truck at 80 miles per hour as an eight-year-old. According to North Koreans interviewed by Anna Fifield, even in North Korea, it was hard to believe what the propagandists were selling. The witness goes on to claim that the stories may have worked on children, but the adults simply laughed when no one was looking. It's moments like these that show that not all North Koreans believe the lies they're told. While it is fair to say that many do, there are plenty who instinctively understand that the Kim dynasty is all smoke and mirrors. They are being manipulated. The danger, of course, comes from questioning the status quo. After being made a four-star general, Kim Jong-un was elevated to the Central Military Commission and to the Central Committee of the Workers' Party. On September 28, 2010, he was officially nominated by Kim Jong-il to be his successor. This was all just a formality. After all, who was going to run against him? Two days later, a picture of Kim Jong-un was published in North Korea's state-run newspaper. It was the first time the people saw his face. What they saw was a husky boy dressed in a black Maoist uniform donning a pompadour. As Anna Fifield describes it, he looked like a young Kim Il-sung. It's unknown exactly who decided on Jong-un's look. Perhaps he himself purposely chose to emulate his grandfather over his father, to subtly remind the people of the days before the famine. Whatever the decision, a message was being sent. Kim Jong-un was the rightful heir to the throne. And for the rest of the year, 
an onslaught of propaganda inundated every aspect of North Korean life. Then came the moment the world had been waiting for. On December 17, 2011, Kim Jong-il suffered a massive heart attack and died. Two days later, the state media announced the dear leader's death to the rest of North Korea. It was now the age of the great successor. South Korea, Japan, and the United States, all enemies of the North, were on high alert. No one knew whether or not Kim would try and show force in honor of his father. Thankfully, he was too preoccupied with healing his mourning country. The funeral for Kim Jong-il was a lavish affair, fraught with over-the-top displays of grief, both real and embellished. One has to wonder if those tears would have been so heavy had they known that the Kumsuzan Memorial Palace, the resting place for Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, cost roughly $900 million to build, especially given that construction occurred during the worst years of the famine. But such a thing was never going to be revealed to the people. Rather, once the morning passed, it was time to look to the future, and the great successor was ready to lead. From the get-go, Kim Jong-un presented himself as a departure from his father, more in line with his grandfather, Kim Il-sung. He dressed and spoke like him, and he made sure to be seen laughing and smiling instead of wearing a scowl. Anna Fifield writes, even today, people who have escaped North Korea tend to remember Kim Il-sung fondly and recall a time when North Korea was strong and prosperous in reality, and not just in the state media's version of events. With that in mind, Kim's focus turned towards rebuilding the economy. Kim Il-sung's political ideology was a version of Marxism-Leninism called Juche, or self-reliance. The irony, of course, being that North Korea relied heavily on China and the Soviet Union. But while Kim Jong-il was leader, the Soviet Union collapsed and China experienced an economic evolution. The changes within these communist countries, coupled with the famine of the early 1990s, nearly brought down North Korea. So Kim Jong-il was forced to introduce glimpses of capitalism into the country, the Chungmadung system. The Chungmadung resembled town squares littered with stalls like a farmer's market. Much of the items sold were foodstuffs, clothing, small appliances, etc. Everyday essential items could be bought and sold. The paradox being that technically, private property was illegal. The state owned everything. When Kim Jong-un took control, he allowed the Chungmadung system to not only continue, but to thrive. Now, in every major city, these marketplaces have established themselves as the dominating economic force throughout the Hermit Kingdom. What resulted was a whole new class of citizen, the Donju. Also known as the Money Masters, this burgeoning class often has an annual net worth of around $100,000. Some claim $1 million a year, while a select few report to be worth over $10 million. With this new bounty of wealth, real estate in Pyongyang has skyrocketed, with luxury apartments built along the skyline. Even though private property is still technically illegal, the higher-ranking Danju, party members or military officials, have figured out ways to profit 
such as leasing out their state-assigned apartments. As with everything in North Korea, this prosperity is all a myth worthy of the divinity coming from Mount Pektu. Despite some very minor economic gains, life in North Korea isn't the paradise they would like you to believe. That's because the vast majority of North Koreans do not, in fact, belong to the Danju class. Many, in fact, struggle at their marketplace stands to break even for the day, let alone turn a profit. In her book, The Great Successor, Anna Fifield recounts a story of a mother and daughter team who sold corn and homemade tofu. They lived three hours from a major city, and their land, like all land, was owned by the state. On a good day, the team would make a profit of 5,000 North Korean won, the equivalent of $5 in America. On a bad day, there was no profit. It's unclear exactly how long the mother and daughter continued to work the Changmadong system before fleeing North Korea in search of a better life. Suffice it to say, they were shocked to discover how poor they really were once they arrived in South Korea. But this story is just one of hundreds from people fleeing the Hermit Kingdom. And while the vast majority of North Koreans continued to suffer under economic oppression, the Danju were flaunting their power. The emergence of the Danju led to a resurgence of corruption and illicit trade throughout the country. Author Chung Min Lee writes that, very rapidly they established pawn shops moved into apartment construction, began to offer venture capital, created networks for human trafficking, and engaged in illicit trade. The money the Danju made through either legitimate or illegitimate means gave them a kind of power unseen before in North Korea. With their vast wealth, they have been able to bribe party or military officials to overlook their nefarious business dealings. And with each passing year, it seems as if these money masters only add to their wealth and power. Zhang Min Lee called Kim Jong-un's forced acceptance of the Danju a Faustian bargain. By the time Kim came into power, enough people had gotten a taste of capitalism that reining it in could threaten the Kim dynasty. To that end, allowing the Changmadong and the Danju wasn't a choice he may have actually wanted. At the same time, the Danju are the principal sources of Kim's fortune, whether through taxes or bribes. The economic paradox is that neither can thrive without the other. Without Kim, the Danju can't have free reign to run their state-owned businesses as they see fit. And without the Danju, Kim's personal wealth and the lie of his divine rule could be challenged. But Kim knew there was another way to keep the people in line. The Danju may be the specter that haunts him, but that didn't mean he had to relinquish absolute power. To that end, there's always one way a dictator can show that he rules with an iron fist. Through mass purges. Coming up, Kim Jong-un shocks the world with unimaginable bloodshed. Now, back to the story. When 27-year-old Kim Jong-un became the new leader of North Korea, he continued to allow minor bits of capitalism into the country that saved it from total collapse. However, in doing so, he was forced to accept an uneasy alliance with a new wealthy class called the Danju. 
Knowing that he couldn't have his authority challenged, Kim followed in his father and grandfather's footsteps, indoctrination, isolation, and persecution. In the first few years of Kim's reign, North Korea was virtually on lockdown. Already considered the hermit kingdom for the lack of information flowing in and out of the country, the isolation only intensified at the outset. Not only did Kim shut down the border with China and add more troops along the borders, but he ramped up efforts to indoctrinate those trapped inside. In every aspect of life, Kim Jong-un's name was forcefully praised. In the factories, the military, neighborhood watch meetings, any place where a large social gathering could occur, the people were told that Kim Jong-un was a genius. School curriculums were changed to include whole sections devoted to the fabricated deeds of their new leader. Toddlers were taught songs praising Kim, while high schoolers were forced to listen to a total of 81 hours of Kim Jong-un-specific history throughout the school year. Ironically, that's only half of what is taught on Kim Il-sung. With the freeze on technology and information coming into the country, no one was able to question the lies. They simply were forced to accept that their new leader was who the government claimed. But Kim knew there needed to be stronger efforts to shore up his claim as heir. It wasn't just enough that the sycophants followed him. He needed all of North Korea to do so. In 2013, he decided it was time to update the 10 principles for the establishment of the monolithic ideology of the party, the veritable Ten Commandments of North Korea. The Ten Principles were introduced in the early 1970s as part of the cult of personality surrounding the Kims. In short, these ten ideas demanded North Koreans must venerate Kim Il-sung, follow his lead, respect his authority, and defend him when called upon. Kim Jong-un decided that they needed to be revised. The ideas behind each principle didn't change. Rather, Kim simply added his father's name next to his grandfather's. He stopped just short of adding his own name. This reinforced the idea that the Kims were, in fact, a dynasty. Only through them, Kim Jong-un concluded, would the people of North Korea be able to achieve the socialist paradise Kim Il-sung had promised. It was required that every single citizen memorize the Ten Principles and be able to recite them without missing a beat. And if someone were to disobey the Ten Principles, they were most likely sent to the gulags. We've discussed in previous episodes how Kim Il-sung established a caste system called the Songbun that helped determine who would end up in the brutal North Korean gulags. Over half a century later, the gulags continue to thrive under Kim Jong-un. Our best look inside comes from a 2014 report by the UN and a 2017 report by the War Crimes Committee of the International Bar Association. In the mid-2010s, there were believed to be at least four major gulag camps, housing between 200,000 and 300,000 prisoners and their families. Nothing has changed since the time of Kim Il-sung. As Chung Min Lee notes when describing Camp 15, prisoners died regularly from forced labor, starvation, disease, torture, beating, or execution. 
guards were said to torture and murder for fun. In the 2017 report, one witness told officials that they saw a newborn baby fed to a pack of dogs. And another story describes a pregnant woman beaten to induce labor. The woman survived, but the baby sadly did not. Thomas Bergenthal, a member of the 2017 investigative committee, was quoted as saying that the North Korean gulags were worse than the Nazi concentration camps. Bergenthal would know. As a child, he survived the horrors of Auschwitz. The people sent to these camps varied greatly. Truth be told, there was and is no real rhyme or reason for sending someone away. Breaking one of the ten principles is an easy way to find yourself sent off. But sometimes you could be arrested for simply being related to someone who escaped to South Korea. The point was to instill fear into the people. The supreme leader giveth, and he can taketh away. But if anyone close to Kim thought they were immune, they were sorely mistaken. It didn't matter if an official had worked for years with Kim's father or helped guide him in his early years as a leader. If Kim felt threatened, you were doomed. For all dictators, purges are a necessity to retain power and instill fear within the party. Kim realized this and got to work culminating in one of the most shocking episodes of his young reign. Jang Song-taek was Kim Jong-un's uncle by marriage. The husband of Kim Jong-il's sister, Jang was widely considered the de facto leader of North Korea during Jong-un's leadership training in the late 2000s. And more importantly, he was an advisor once Jong-un became dictator. Jiang played an important role when it came to relations between China and North Korea. China's steady move to allow more variations of capitalism inspired Jiang. He had encouraged Kim Jong-il to follow China's lead with the creation of special economic zones, essentially state-controlled capitalism. Kim Jong-un continued the special economic zones as part of his plans to increase the people's wealth and he put his uncle Jang in charge of overseeing the projects. But this meant that Jang was becoming closer with China and more vocal about following their economic model. His own star was rising with North Korea's friends to the north. Pictures circulated of him standing and smiling alongside Chinese officials, including the president. To make matters worse, Kim had broken tradition. Two years into his reign, he had yet to travel to Beijing to show deference to his Chinese benefactors as his father and grandfather had done at the beginning of their reigns. With Uncle Jiang making the pilgrimages instead, his own personal relationship with China was becoming stronger than Kim's. It became clear that charismatic Uncle Jiang was a threat. On December 8, 2013, during a meeting of the Politburo of the Workers' Party, Jiang's name was called before the governing body. Jiang, dressed in a black Maoist suit, like everyone else in the room, was forced to listen to a long list of offenses he'd committed against his nephew and the state. Some of the more damning accusations were that he betrayed the love of Kim Jong-un, that he sold off North Korean resources to China for his own personal gain, that he was a gambler, a drug addict, and a depraved philanderer. 
He was described as despicable human scum, who was worse than a dog, who committed such an unpardonable thrice-cursed treason as overtly and covertly standing in the way of settling the issue of succession to leadership. After the laundry list was read, Jiang was stripped of his titles, expelled from the Workers' Party, and escorted out of the room by two guards as Kim Jong-un watched with approval. Anna Fifield notes that the dramatic expulsion of Jiang was purely theater. She claims that Jiang and a few of his aides had secretly been arrested months earlier. The December 8th performance was meant solely for the members of the Politburo. State media displayed the embarrassing arrest all over the country. For the first time since the 1970s, a government official was being publicly expelled from the party. A few days later, on December 12th, Jiang faced a military tribunal for his treasonous crimes, including an alleged plot to overthrow Kim Jong-un. Naturally, the verdict was guilty, and the sentence was death. Jiang Song takes execution created a litany of wild stories. One of the most outlandish was that he was stripped naked and hunted down by over 100 dogs, all while Kim watched. However, this story came from a satirical website from China that several news outlets repeated as fact. According to the North Koreans, Jang was executed by firing squad. Later that day, all records of his existence were erased from government documents and history books. The execution of Jang Song-tek was only the beginning of purges under the new leadership. According to Chung Min Lee, by the end of 2016, after five years at the helm, Kim Jong-un had ordered the executions of more than 150 officials and had several hundred more purged or imprisoned. Such displays of violence have not only instilled fear among the people of North Korea, but have painted Kim Jong-un as one of the most ruthless leaders in the world. This international image would only get worse throughout the 2010s as North Korea under Kim aggressively sought to show the world that they should be feared. The two most egregious examples were through cyber terrorism and obtaining nuclear weapons. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore North Korea's nuclear program under Kim Jong-un, as well as his use of cyber terrorism and the assassination of his half-brother, Kim Jong-nam. Among the many resources used in our research, we found Anna Fifield's The Great Successor and Chung Min Lee's The Hermit King to be particularly helpful. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParkCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParkCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParkCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. 
Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs> <laughs>